The last time that I was with my oldest niece and nephew, uh, we played a game where they they ran continually ran past me, and I, I would grab them and, and lift them into the air. And after every time I grabbed them, uh, they would run away, but then very soon run right back for me to grab them again. And the thing is, uh, if we learn to enjoy something, we, we reach the point where we're happy to be trapped by it. And maybe that's a harmless game that we were playing, but then there are times when that same inclination becomes far more serious. And Paul raised that exact point for us in Galatians 4, verses 8 to 11. The Galatians had once been enslaved to these elementary prints of the world, right? The law built into us by nature. Although Christ had set them free from this slavery, they wanted to return to it. Like kids who enjoy playing games where they get trapped, the Galatians seemed to enjoy being caught by that which had enslaved them. Although God, as the first part of this chapter had made clear, although God had become their loving father in spiritual adoption, they preferred slavery. Now, there are several issues for us to untangle in that. But there's a pretty direct point for us to take away in the outset which is the direction that we'll be pursuing uh, throughout. So the, the sinful inclination right, built into all of us is that we all enjoy being trapped, sometimes by our worst enemies. The sin That is our sinful inclination. Now there's a big difference between, on the one hand, games we enjoy playing about getting caught by parents or loved ones, And on the other hand, the way we find comfort in being caught in our sin, we all incline to prefer the slavery of sin over God's fatherly love. Which reveals the irrationality of how sin works. Now how does that fit into the big picture of Galatians as we work through this letter. We know that this church was affected by false teachers, don't we, who had come along and begun teaching that certain works, namely ceremonial works from the Old Testament economy, were were required for salvation. Namely, they argued that faith wasn't sufficient to, to save Gentiles who had converted to Christ. Rather, Everybody had to do works, specifically those ceremonial works of the Old Covenant, like circumcision and observing various festivals. In other words, these false teachers had suggested that salvation was by faith and some works, not just by trusting in Christ alone. And the knock-on effect of that was that they divided Jew and Gentile within within the church, those who acted like Jews and and who kept Jewish custom, well, they got to be considered true and proper Christians. But 
those who were uncircumcised or unfamiliar with Jewish ceremonial law, well, they were left to the side. In other words, the false view of faith had divided the fellowship of the church. The false teacher's imposition of works as the condition for salvation separated true Christians from one another based on a false standard. In the past few passages that we've considered in Galatians, Paul has untangled a few complex points about God's various dealings with his people throughout history. And his main point was that God has always dealt with his people for salvation by faith alone. Whether that was faith in the Messiah who would come, as in the case for Old Testament believers, or in our case, the Messiah who has come. We follow, regardless of which perspective believers have taken, we follow the pattern of Abraham, who was justified by faith, the father of believers. Abraham is is our father in the faith. He believed and God accepted him as righteous in his sight because of that. And so we follow in his footsteps of faith. So then, if that's the case, if that's the case, why would Jews and Gentiles adopt? Why would they take on themselves more conditions for salvation than God has placed upon us? Paul tells us in our passage today that the reason is is because we all like, sinfully like, being enslaved. We drift towards it. We run back to the things that trap us as if we are playing children's games, getting caught in the arms of a loved one. And yet, yet, slavery to sin is running precisely away from the God who loves us to what would destroy us. So our main point today is that we should flee from the things that spiritually enslave us because Christ has set us free from them. We should run. We should flee from the things that spiritually enslave us because Christ has set us free from them. So the first thing we're going to think about uh, as as we work through this is their condemnation. What condemned these nations? Their condemnation. And there, as we as we get going, as we as we think about the text to see how we can apply it, uh, there are two points that we that we need to lift out of verses eight and nine to frame the significance of this passage. First. This whole section, starting at verse 8 to 11, contrasts with what came just before in verses 1 to 7 about how believers are adopted as full heirs of spiritual blessings. So this, this desire for slavery contrasts, conflicts with being an adopted heir of God. So there really should be another little phrase at at the beginning of of verse 8 there, something like, by contrast, or on the other hand, or or something like that, to note 
This is in con, what I'm about to tell you that you're doing is in conflict with your identity in Jesus Christ. So, that's, yeah, because this little passage of scripture tells us something about what the Galatians presently wanted that conflicted with their true spiritual status as God's children. And that sets the first aspect of what we need to have in mind as we think about why we flee the things that enslave us. Well, it conflicts with our status as adopted heirs in Jesus Christ. Second, second thing, just to pull out of verses 8 and 9 to, to get us going, is what is, what is the conflict? That's, the second thing is to answer the question, what is the conflict? In verse 8 and 9, spells out what was, what was true of everyone. Galatians, but has application pretty instantly to us. What was true of everyone before they they became believers and then the mistake that the Galatians made. So these verses say formerly, so you see the first half of the contrast, right? Used to be the case. Formerly, when you did not know God, well, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now, the contrast, right? Used to be the case that you were enslaved, but now that you have come to know God, or better than that, let me put it this way, now that you have come to be known by God, God knows you, believer, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You want to go back to slavery? Before they were Christians, the Galatians were enslaved. Now, now the big question, right? I know, it's kind of a, a weird uh, way to put it. I shouldn't say that. It's a, it's a interesting and not immediately clear way to put the point that what does it mean that they were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods? What's he even talking about? Okay, if we think, this is, I, I think that this is actually easier than, than it might sound. If we think back to chapter 3, verse 19, Paul wrote there, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And here's, here's the key that I think unlocks what we're dealing with right here. And it was put in place through the law, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So Paul had told us already, and he expects us to keep these things in mind as we keep going, uh, that God gives his law to men through the angels. Right? There's a sort of baton effect, handing, handing it on. God passes the law to the angels who then give it to people. And as the angels are then, in, in some sense, right, the, the guardians of the law, <clears throat> well, to be condemned by the law is to be enslaved to the angels, those who aren't gods by nature, and yet they're holding an authority over us, namely in condemnation. They will, after all, we know, right, the angels will come and assist Christ in executing judgment 
on the last day. So that's what I think that's about um, there. And that is the connection to returning to the elementary principles of the world. The angels have sway through the law and the law is built into us. The moral law is built into God's image bearers by creation. And it condemns sinners. And yet the Galatians are eager to go back to it. But so notice though that big, big change. Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, the, the, the difference, do you see it? The difference between slavery and freedom is a relationship with the Almighty God. The problem with the, with the Galatians is that they had come to know God, they had a relationship, they, they had Him as their adopted Father, and they didn't want it anymore. We'd rather go back to the slave masters than enjoy being heirs of the God of the universe. And Paul was clear how they had come to have this relationship to God first knew them. Isn't that amazing? When you think about it, Paul corrects himself, specifies, clarifies what he means. Right? You've come to know God. And what I mean by that is, God knows you. God had established a relationship with Him. God had first known them and had set His love upon them. And that's what He does with us. God reaches out to those who are enslaved. He brings them to freedom and makes them His sons and daughters. And yet, despite, despite their conversion to this new relationship with God, they wanted to go back to slavery. They wanted it. They wanted to be back under the law. They preferred their condemnation. And so that brings us to the second thing that we need to consider. They preferred their condemnation, and so we need to think about our connection to that. They had a preference for condemnation. What's our connection to their situation? And I think in this instance, it's, it's really important that we move pretty quickly to see how this links to our situation. It may seem obscure or far removed from us that these Gentiles in, in the first century preferred circumcision and, and religious ceremonies that Paul said were not helping their salvation. But the real problem, the real problem underlying all of that for the Galatians isn't, I like doing this, this, and this. The real problem is that they liked things that condemned them. In their case, right? So in their case, they liked works of the law as a condition for salvation. And yet, their works could not earn salvation. And so, their attempt to depend on those works condemned them. This would be like falling through a a rotting floor and then preferring to stand continually in that same spot. 
That was their preference. That was how they liked enslavement and condemnation. But to our connection to this problem, I, th- I, d- I don't think that we necessarily prefer the works of the law in a legalistic way for our condemnation. I don't think that's how this works out for us. Typically, there are exceptions um, around the world. Yeah, I think in our case, nonetheless, we still prefer the things that condemn us and the way that that we go about this is that we find comfort in our sin. We like it. How do we see that they preferred the works of the law? Right? As we as we try to get this balance and this connection clear biblically. Verse ten highlights how, how they turned to keep ceremonial festivals and, and calendars from the Mosaic Covenant. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Now, we need, to, we need to work out what this is and get this clear. And it's important to note, it, if you trust me and hang with me for a second, it will become clear why. It is important to note that these are all plural. Days, months, seasons, years. Why is it important that it's in the plural? Uh, these verses that I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you, I'm not gonna read them all, but the, the ones I'm gonna cite are here on, on your order of service at the end. So in Colossians 2.16, Paul addressed a similar issue about fest, a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Here's the thing. Uh, I actually don't know why they did this, but but in the Greek, all these things are plural. So, festivals, new moons, Sabbaths, right? These are all plural. And the same phrase of, of those plural things, talking about these calendrical cycles and that sort of thing, these phrases appear in the Old Testament in First Chronicles 23, uh, 29 to 31 and Ezekiel 45 17 gathered together all using the plural now the point is here's here's the the payoff of, of that evidence when Paul writes about plural seasons and festivals and plural sabbaths not one not the singular sabbath sabbaths he's referring to ceremonies that specifically belong to the Mosaic Covenant. Right? The, the Galatians had readopted a seasonal and yearly calendar of religious festivals um, and, and ceremonies as a condition for salvation. Now, just to, I mean, I know that we have readers here, and so I, I feel like I do have to put this on 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 your radar there there are some i'm going to name names these are these are good reputable uh biblical commentators so i'm not i'm not putting a, a huge red flag i'm just putting you in the know there are some popular baptist writers such as tom Schreiner, peter gentry stephen wellham good theologians helpful on the biblical text and yet they argue that these passages like this mean that the the sabbath 
the Lord's Day, right, um, is no longer binding for Christians because Paul is attacking it here, right? Seems, if you translate it as a singular rather than as a plural, um, in their view, there is no one day which we are bound to set aside for rest and worship. But they miss that Paul is not talking about the Sabbath, the creation ordinance built into the seventh day for humanity to have special time to commune with God. Paul's Sabbaths, festivals, seasons, years, and, and the like of that nature are all mosaic ceremonies, the, the yearly jubilee and, and the like. And those things have gone away. Not the one day a week, but all these other things. Now, the application, let's make some, let's draw this to its significance. The application here is that while here and now, the weekly Lord's Day is still binding, even though the yearly church calendar is not. Easy enough. Weekly worship I guess to make this, I guess, clear, weekly worship today takes precedent over Christmas and Easter. Right? That's not, that's not necessarily a criticism of extra holidays like Christmas and Easter, but it's to say that they are not necessary parts of the Christian life like ordinary Lord's Day worship is each week. The good news Right? Why is that important? Why, why is that not just a, a weird throwaway? Because the good news is that God's provision for you, believer, is ordinary, is regular, is weekly. You don't have to wait for high points in the year. You don't have to wait for the big experiential days. God pours blessings out to his people every single week. He's got a regular pattern of it. But the Galatians, the Galatians had insisted on legal ceremonies as a condition for salvation. And that condemned them. But that circles our attention back to us. Like the Galatians, we prefer actually things that condemn us. Unlike the Galatians, so the difference is that we tend to find comfort not in adding conditions for our salvation, but more often the other direction, indulging our sin. And let's be honest, though, at the end of the day, like the Galatians struggled to actually measure up, as Paul is going to point out, But let's be honest in the things that we do. How often is your sin really satisfying? Does it ever really give you what you want? Has, Has there been that moment when you give in to sin? And, and you have the thought, that really did the trick, now I'm satisfied? Is that, is that how it ever ends? No. 
We give in to sin, and it eats us alive. We indulge our lust, and it feeds on our soul, perpetuating itself, driving us back to the filth again and again and again and again and again. It devours us as our desires of the flesh take over and drag us repeatedly back to the same smut that promises everything and gives nothing. We pretend it's all right to foster anger and bitterness over the smallest thing where we disagree with someone, wish something else would happen. It helps us feel righteous as we excuse ourselves because we have to be right. After all, how could I want the wrong thing? It's me. Yet we find the distance between us and our friends and our family grows increasingly larger as we give in to that bitterness. We let ourselves use other people, taking advantage of them because it makes us feel powerful. We excuse it because we need that thrill. We need the ride of feeling better and superior as we manipulate people. And how often does it really satisfy? Or does it, or does it leave us guilt-ridden and feeling hollow, empty, and separated from others? Greed, by definition, is insatiable. A driving master that will never let you go and will end you and put a wall between those, between you and those whom you step on to get what you want. And yet these are the things we prefer. We're comfortable with our sin. We like them. And so again, our connection to this situation in Galatia is that like the Galatians, we run right back to the things that enslave us. Like a dog returns to its vomit. Like kids playing a game, we run back to what traps us. In in our case, we're trapped by condemnation, running back to that which would make us finally fit for hell were it not for the overwhelming grace of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the final thing we need to consider, and that is the Christ. So our final point is the Christ. Maybe you're wondering why this sermon is titled A Truly Fruitful Ministry when I've not talked about ministry at all uh, the whole time. Or its fruitfulness. But we see the point here in verse 11. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Paul says because you're running back to the things that enslaved you, I'm afraid all of my ministerial work amongst you amounted to nothing. Because the Galatians turned away from the gospel, veering to to depend on their works for salvation, Paul feared that his ministry was empty. We learn from that 
that a fruitful ministry is one where people learn the true gospel and remain attached to Christ alone by faith alone. So a fruitful ministry must be full of describing Jesus Christ and his work for us. And as you may expect, that is then what we need to consider now. And so I would set before all of us, again, the same stark contrast that Paul presented in this letter. There are the things we loved before coming to Christ, the things that enslave and condemn us. And there is Jesus Christ. And those are our options. As uncomfortable as it might be to reconsider the issue, Paul is writing to believers and so sets before all of us, unbeliever and believer, whether we prefer what condemns or Christ who saves. Maybe you're wondering what all of this talk about condemnation and slavery to sin is even about. Maybe you've never had any sort of realization or acknowledgement that you need to be set free from things that condemn you and hold you captive. But it is true. And I would set Christ before you today as the offer of freedom. You might find fleeting moments of pleasure in the offer of of sin and, and lawlessness, which is why it holds us captive. And yet, its never ending demands linger over your head, never leaving us to rest and lasting satisfaction. And so, if you're not a believer, if, if this is new, even if you have heard it before, I would set before you Christ as the thing, as the person who brings freedom, provides lasting satisfaction. Christ has risen from the grave to free those who trust in Him from this slavery and its condemnation. God sent His Son to into the world to break the chains of sin and death so that His people might live free from it. In Christ, we find rest from the demands of temptation and, and we find satisfaction that endures like drinking from living water that will never let us thirst again. In Christ... When everything else seems to entice, and yet it's a cruel taskmaster, in Christ, God becomes our loving Father. In Christ, the condemnation that falls upon us for committing and loving sin is washed away. Whereas unbelievers stand before God as His enemies, Christ invites you to embrace Him by faith that we would find forgiveness and reconciliation with Almighty God. Believers, believers, let us find encouragement 
in Christ so that we may not turn back to the things that formerly enslaved us? You, Christian, you've heard it, are known by God. God knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows your in and outs. And more than that, this, this tells us that you have his special affection as Father. With Almighty God's fatherly love as his heirs, why? Why would we be deceived by the lures of sin and Satan? Your former sinful masters may continually summon you back to work for them and yet with no reward. And the God of heaven beckons that you would trust in Jesus Christ and find rest fulfilled in the treasures of heaven awaiting those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you now as as the father of believers and we ask that you would give a, a truly fruitful ministry in this church, but even today, here and now. We ask that in these moments, Christ is clearly before us. That we understand that his, his death is to wash away our sin. That his life is to cleanse us and renew us. That he stands in heaven to intercede for us always. We pray that nothing clouds the clarity of Christ. Christ. 